Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course. Um... Jim, who are we talking to today? We've got we've got a guest, and and um, uh, I expect at some point my head might hurt talking about this subject because um, uh, it's uh, that that part of sort of I don't know sociological thinking and uh, stuff. Economics, that, Al. Economics. Yeah, exactly. That. Economics. I was, I, was, I, was, I was trying to sidle up to it without um, uh, without. I, I, I'm of... just going to be brazen and blunt. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'm, as you know, I mean, you, you know, we talked about this uh, a, a number of times and you, you mentioned it the other day, we, you know, we need, we don't just need historians, we need people who can give us different perspectives on the war, which is why, of course, we've come to the economic guru that is Duncan Weldon, you know, political advisor, journalist, um, Newsnight's economic and business editor back in the day, and, um, and an, all- an all-round economist. Well, well, an author of 200 years of muddling through the surprising story of Britain's economy from boom to bust and back. So I'm expecting some muddling through, Duncan, in the, in the history of the Second World War. But, so, but, but, but yeah, the, the economy in the war, that's what we want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- Welcome, th- thanks, thanks for the introduction. If you know, if you haven't put all of the listeners off already, you know, we'll we'll, we'll try and get them back on board. <laughs> oh, and and you're at Duncan Weldon on um, on on Twitter, and I like seeing your tweets because you, you you I mean, obviously, you didn't need a rocket scientist to work out that Liz Truss's ideas weren't exactly top of the <laughs> top of the pile of, of good sense. But but uh, you do make very good sense of stuff that I don't really understand. So I'm very grateful to you. Much appreciated. So, Duncan, what is the story of? Um, the, 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 the second world economics in the second world war because obviously it, it, it's foreshadowed by 20 years of sort of turmoil and um uh well post first world war um fallout so what what happens in the economy during 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 the war yeah i mean i think you know world war one and world war two you know you've got to look at them not just through that sort of military lens but through the economic lens as well you know they're the first yeah. sort of 20th century proper you know total war you know this isn't just two national armies fighting each other this is entire nations under arms people society the economies being mobilized and you know everything else going out of the window and just you know raising the resources to fight the war being crucial and i think in both of those wars you know economic factors played yeah, I think ultimately a decisive role in both. In both cases, yeah. it was those sort of, you know, the countries that had the 
the bigger industrial output that could mobilise more resources, which ultimately sort of, you know, won that long wrestling match, which both wars really came down to in the end. Yeah. Well, Phyllis Payson and O'Brien would agree with you, and, and frankly, so do I. Um, so, um, you know, we've been looking at this, because you know, everyone always says, says that, that, you know, the war was won on the Eastern Front, and, you know, that was where the most blood was spilled and all the rest of it. If you look at it from a purely economic point of view, it was absolutely won on the Western Front, not the Eastern. Um, so it's, it's it, you know, that is interesting. The other thing I'm kind of really interested in is, is these, these these patterns that you get of, of, of human pay, behaviour, which, of course, is why history is so worthwhile studying. And if you look at, uh, you know, obviously the Wall Street crash in 1929 and you look at the fallout of that, you know, you know 10 years later, you've got, a, you've got a world war. And if you think about sort of 2008, and here we are a little over a decade, decade later, and we've got sort of populist governments and you've got war in Ukraine and, you know, the, the world is a very different place as it was in, in 2008. I mean, do, do you think those, those patterns are, are relevant? Well, that's, that's a cheery thought, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, think the, I think those patterns... Yeah, I think those patterns are relevant. You know, I think generally, you know, stepping back just from the war... You know, I think one thing that, um, you know, came across when I was looking at the last 200 odd years of British economic history is when you get periods when the economy is, to use a technical term, in the toilet, um, then politics becomes much more fractious, much more divisive. And yeah, you know, so that, that interwar period, sort of the 1920s and the 1930s, um, you know, period of, sort of sluggish growth, really high unemployment, all of those economic shocks, you get some really, really very nasty politics in um, some parts of the world. And I think that does sort of add towards that sort of turn to authoritarian governments, this sort of yeah. fighting for resources, which, you know, if you look at the war in Asia, you know, there's an awful lot of sort of economic underpinnings of, you know, Japan is, um, mm. Japan is, you know, it, it is trying to capture resources. It's trying to capture, you know, bauxite and oil resources, all of this. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a very explicitly sort of, you know, economically driven um, form of sort of imperialism in, in, in the war in Asia. Yeah. Well, yes, and cause, well, you know, Japan's big problem is also is it just can't get, it doesn't have many natural resources itself. And it's, and it's a really mountainous country. So it's, it's, you know, all the urban areas are sort of around the coast, aren't they? And, and there's not a lot of farmland. And suddenly you've got this burgeoning population, you've got this growing urban population. You know, what do you do? You know, well, what they're doing in the 1920s and 30s is, is getting a lot of it from elsewhere, you know, buying it and buying it from the United States and so on. Yeah. But the reason they're going to China is not just because, you know, they fancy capturing China for kicks. I mean, they're doing it because they want to kind of, plunder its resources, don't they? Oh, completely. And, you know, what I think is interesting is if you sort of step back uh, and you look at Britain in both wars. Yes. You know, Britain, you know, another island nation, all of this. But, um, but the interesting thing about Britain is, you know, the way Britain fights both world wars is, you know, in stark contrast to how Japan in the Second World War or Germany in either war goes about thinking about, you know, Britain fights both wars as sort of a... a, a as part of a global, you know, a very globalist approach to how the British economy is run. Mm. You know, Britain is a country which has been a, an importer of food since the 1840s. And in the Second World, in fact, the First World War and the Second World War continues to import food. You know, it imports, um, it imports meat from Latin America. It imports, um, it, you know, it, it imports all of these different materials. And Britain, you know, if you look at sort of you know, the German approach in both wars or the Japanese approach in the Second World War, they're sort of striving for autarky, for national self-sufficiency. And they think their country's war efforts will be stronger if they control all of these resources. 
Britain fights both yeah. wars in a very different way. It continues to import an awful lot of goods. And actually, what I think is really interesting is, you know, British policymakers explicitly see this as a, as, 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 as a strength, as a, you know, it means that, you know, Britain is importing its food. And as long as you can keep the sea lanes open and continue to import that food, that's an advantage because it means you don't have to have mm. a huge chunk of your population working in the fields. You can put them into yeah. munitions factories or into, or into uniform directly. You know, the, yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the First World War, um, am I right in thinking the British government essentially tried to act like it's not happening economically, that, 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 that there's, there's a, a, essentially a laissez-faire attitude to, to the conflict and... And then there's a there's an ammunition crisis in 1915, and they they run out of all sorts of stuff, and and they they realise they they realise that, that that this isn't this isn't it isn't working, and that, and you know there's inflation and all this sort of stuff. It, the, the Second World War, I mean, I think part of the way the story of the Second World War is told is that everyone knows it's coming, it's going to happen. It's not this, it's not, you know, because the First World War is is of course portrayed. Although recent historians like Christopher Clark have tried to argue differently that the First World War is coming a mile off. Whereas, you know, the traditional st- story is that it comes out, it's a bolt out of the blue. Um, and the Second World War, in contrast, is a thing that everyone's getting ready for, preparing for. I mean, we've, we've talked on this podcast that Chamberlain is actually rearming like mad. He's, he's got this fortress Britain idea. He's going to, he's going to uh, 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 rearm a, 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 and try and deter the Germans. It doesn't work, of course. When the Second World War comes, the British government's attitude is far more, right, here we go again. This is what we learned last time. This is what we're going to do. Is that, is that a, a reasonable characterization? I think that's completely fair. I think, yeah, the, the, the great advantage that sort of the government policymakers, strategists, etc. have in the Second World War is they've got the experience of the First World War. And yeah, you know, in 1914, when Britain goes to war, there is, there is this attempt at first to sort of run it as, you know, run the economy as business as usual. And I think there's sort of an, you know, an, un, an unresolved question as to what kind of war Britain is going to fight in 1914. And I think a lot of yeah. a lot of the British leadership think they're going to fight something that looks like the Napoleonic Wars, in that Britain's going to be this offshore um, sort of, you know, financer and industrial powerhouse behind the Allies, fight a naval war, yeah. to p- provide money, provide munitions, etc., and not get drawn into a major land war in Europe that obviously goes out of the window very quickly. And it's this sort of slow process for at 1915, 1916 of it sort of gradually dawning on the government how large an undertaking they've gotten themselves into and just taking, yeah. you know, taking, you know, previously unimagined controls um, over industry, over transport, you know, um, all of that sort of, you know, building this big state apparatus which Britain's never seen before to manage national output. And when we get to the Second World War, yeah, everyone knows what it's going to be like. Those lessons are applied those sort of wartime controls and planning are put in place much quicker. And it's it's a much better managed war economically um, by Britain. Um, yeah. And we get much more output um, we, we, um, straight away. And it's a much better financed war as well. Like, you know, in the First World War, um, this is one of the sort of business as usual things. It, it, it sounds quite striking now, but, you know, the... You know, suddenly the, the government is going to be spending an awful lot of money over four years. And in the First World War, at first, the government tries to go about financing that like it's previously financed stuff. It just issues bonds to investors. It gives them quite a high interest rate to make sure there's enough demand. And then at the end of the war, you know, you've got this government just um, left sort of, you know, carrying 
this enormous and very, very, very expensive debt, which is one of the things really crippling the British economy in the 1920s. Whereas when you get to the yeah. Second World War, there's, there's no attempt at business as usual. You know, the city is basically told, you are going to buy these bonds, this is your patriotic duty, and you're going to buy them at a really low interest rate too. You know, it's just a much better financed war. What does that then... What freedom of movement does that give the British government then, in contrast to the First World War? What, what, what sort of economic space does it create for itself? Because after all, the, the Second World War, the British government going to thinking, right, well, we're going to, we're, we're going to have fight a naval war. We're probably going to stall the Germans on the French frontier. We're going to kind of probably fight something pre- fairly similar to last time round. Yeah, um, we're uh, we're going to sort of get some lots of bombers over to over to Germany yeah, if that doesn't work, extend, and we're going to sort of brush yeah, them. Extend the blockade through bombing and, and, and essentially fight the Second World War again. But, but now we know what we're doing. And, um, and also that's... largely from, from, from the UK. Yeah. You know, from, 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 from naval, naval bases and, and, and airfields. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. So, so, what, so what, what economic space does this new approach by the British government? Is it, because, after all, then the war doesn't go according to, according to plan. Because it's all very well... What they do in thirty nine, early forty, putting this together, but then the bot, the ass falls out. Everything to use another to use a technical term in the strategic earthquake, as we call it on this podcast, where France falls, Britain Britain's out of Europe. What d- does this new economic plan then help in that situation, or is it still, or is it actually turn out to be inad- inadequate? I mean, it has to all you know, like everything, it has to be reassessed after. Let's call it a strategic earthquake um, in yeah. sort of you know May June nineteen forty. I mean, it's interesting when you look at yeah, Britain is rearming like mad by the late nineteen thirties. I'm completely right on that, but it's interesting um, how sort of policymakers, politicians talk about that. You know, you, you get you explicitly, you get explicit talk of the strength of Britain's economy as sort of the, um, the fourth arm of, um, you know, so you've got, you've got the Air Force, you've got the Navy, you've got the Army, and the strength of the economy is the fourth arm of defence. Um, Gosh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, so, um, certainly yeah. that's what Treasury officials like to call it, but um, it, seems to, um, yeah. it seems to sort of penetrate <laughs> into the Cabinet Office as well. And this sort of belief that, um, you know, what the Treasury was trying to do in the late 1930s was this, this balancing act in that, you know, so the lesson of the First World War as Treasury officials, and, you know, the Treasury, absolutely central department in how British government is run, particularly when you've got a Prime Minister like Neville Chamberlain, you know, um, a former Chancellor surrounded by yeah. Treasury officials. You know, so the thinking yeah. is World War Two is going to look something like the Great War did. It's going to be long, it's going to be drawn out, and in the end, economic strength is going to be decisive. You know, the country that can mobilise the most resources, sustain its And that's pretty accurate, isn't it? Yeah, Let's face it. I think it's completely accurate. So, you know, what Britain wants to do is... Um, so Britain is fairly confident it can win a long war against Germany. You know, its economy is just a much stronger economy. Britain is a much richer country than Germany. So and it has shipping, doesn't it? It has lots and lots, yeah. of, it has lots yeah. and lots of merchant shipping. It has access to the world's oceans. has access to the world's markets yeah. and resources in a way that Germany just just doesn't at all. Yeah, exactly. So what, so what you've got to ensure is you've got to rearm enough that you're not going to lose a war very quickly, but not yeah. rearm so quickly that you damage your economy doing it. And that's sort of the balancing act, I think, the Treasury is wow, explicitly that's so interesting. thinking about. And it's one they get just about right. You know, it survives that strategic mm. earthquake. And then you have to, you know, very quickly you get into... Um, Lend-lease and, you know, all of this sort of more... Yeah, I mean, you know, America is... 
The United yeah, States so, had so economically Duncan engaged in the war much earlier than December 1941. Yeah. Of course. But 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 how much is I mean, huge play is made of the fact that the that Britain has run out of you know, it's run out of money by March nineteen forty one. And and I always sort of get the impression people who say that you know, it, it's by the letter true, but but not really true because running out of cash doesn't really mean. But because because you're this huge great trading nation with this huge merchant fleet and with this huge empire and and huge extra imperial assets as well, your purchasing power is absolutely enormous compared to literally just about everybody. So running out of cash isn't quite the kind of sort of sort of the the terrible kind of voodoo that it, that it it seems on paper. Yeah. Is that right or yeah, is that I, wrong? I think that is right. I think that there's a caveat to that, but it's generally right. And I think, you know, that this is another difference in how the Second World... You know, how people approach the Second World War and the economy to the First World War. In the First World War, you know, you've still got sort of officials walking around Whitehall sort of, you know, fretting, how are we going to pay for this? And in the Second World War, they realise the constraint isn't money. The constraint is sort of the real ability of the economy to produce output. And you'll sort of, you know, you'll figure out the money side of it later. The most important thing is to produce what you need to produce. The caveat... OK, and how do you, so how do you get round that? Um, so, you know... How, how do you square that one? Yeah, so, you know, in this... In, For the layman who doesn't understand economics. Yeah, so in the... Um, so they just put the... You know, in the Second World War, they just, you know, order the resources they need and then they tell the city, you know, you're, you're going to finance it. Um, use a bit of moral suasion at first and if that doesn't work, then you, um, you put restrictions. So, you know, you say... You know, amazingly, this didn't happen straight away in the First World War. In the Second World War, they say, OK, nobody is going to be selling shares to raise money or, you know, raising a, a commercial bond to finance whatever they want to do. All available savings are effectively being pushed into the war effort. Um, you know, business as usual stops in the city. The banks, the insurance companies, whatever, their resources are put to work. The caveat to all of this, where money does matter, is where you're buying stuff from overseas. And I think in both wars, Britain, you know, Britain eventually faces basically a dollar crunch in that you need yeah. dollars to be able to purchase stuff in the United States. And, you know, obviously there's a messy history to this that, you know, most countries effectively default on their debts to the United States from the First World War. And so mm. anything you want to buy in America has to be bought on what's rather wonderfully called a cash and carry basis that you can't borrow in dollars to fund your war production so you've got to be you've got to be handing over the dollars to purchase whatever you're purchasing in in the US and you know by <clears throat> sort of 1940 getting into 1941 Britain is really running short on dollar assets you know we've literally requisitioned everyone's dollar based shares in the company in the country and sold those yeah. um yeah. so it's like you know we're trying to find dollars and you know lend lease is a way around that um, you know, the Ameri America basically agrees to, you know, essentially supply Britain with an awful lot of its um, needs from the United States. And, you know, we will think about payment later. So how does America do it? Because America's obviously gone through the Great Depression. Uh, um, it, you know, it's, it's on, a, on a bit of an upturn by 1939, but it's still not kind of out of the woods. And yet suddenly in 1940, Roosevelt can order, you know, can push... 200 billion, you know, was it 50 billion for dollars through through Congress for war production and, and get all the all the big manufacturers, particularly the car manufacturers on board and steel producers and all the rest of it. But but how do you generate what I've never I've, I sort of understand the basics of it, but I've never really understood how you're able to do that just by sort of so the government saying, OK, we want to now build, you know, 
300,000 aircraft and, you know, 100,000 tanks. It's not very well saying that, but how do you actually finance that? How do you make that work? And I know what they do is they harness big business and they they harness um, commercial production alongside um, military production until they're in full full steam ahead military production. But but how does that work exactly? Yes, I think the the advantage America has going into the war, it's not really an advantage, but, you know, the, the silver lining America has to a rather big cloud is, you know, the economy has had a really difficult 1930s. Um, and in economic terms, you have a lot of spare capacity in that economy. So there's, lo- there's loads of slack in the American yeah, industry. Yeah, loads economy. of slack. You've still, you've still got very high unemployment. You know, you've, you've, you've yeah. still the economy hasn't really fully recovered from the, you know, the crash in 29, then the, um, the, um, the Great Recession, Depression um, following it. So you've got that slack. And because you've got that slack, if someone steps up there and injects a load of demand into the economy, in this case, you know, the US government ordering aircraft, ordering tanks, um, allied nations ordering goods from the United States, um, you know, that slack can just, you know, move in um, and boost production. The potential is there. And, you know, America's in this really weird position in sort of the early 1940s of, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you, know, the, you know, the American economy really, really booms during the war. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's not because it's not just supplying, you know, the American armed forces, it's supplying Britain, it's supplying other allied nations, just a huge amount of um, sort of demand going into that economy. I mean, it's almost a sort of second industrial revolution for the Americans, isn't it? it, it in terms of the way that its manufacturing is completely electrified, and obviously, the, the 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 bow wave of that is in the fifties. They they need a, they create a consumer economy to to meet their industrial capacity. You know that that the, the they've they've sort of retooled themselves as a, a, a industrially, haven't they? Effectively, um, how do you? I, mean, I suppose the slack in the American economy means you can do that without massive wage inflation, all, all, all that sort of stuff. Because because it, certainly in nineteen forty, Britain's got wage inflation going on, hasn't it? Because because people are joining the army, reserved occupations. Uh, b- become more important. So you have this peculiar thing where people are going off to the army, and actually on the home front, kind of before the blitz starts, people are people are kind of uh, living quite well the, on, on the home front, aren't they? Because because their wages have gone up. Um, there's a whole chunk of people being removed from the consumer chain, and so if you're buying consumer goods in 1940 and you've got a reserve occupation, you're li- you're living a good life, aren't you? Yeah, completely, completely. And then, you know, um, yeah, another thing where the Second World War, where lessons have been learned from the first, is in, um, you know, realising that doing a deal with Britain's trade unions early is a very good idea. You know, you end up with, uh, you end up with, um, you know, Ernie Bevan at the Ministry of Labour. You know, you bring in, you know, the leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, the biggest union. And, you know, his, his job is to try and keep everyone sweet. You know, the First World War, we did see... Um, quite widespread strikes at various times, you know, disputes over this. The Second World War, you know, the deal is done with Labour very quickly. And you know, once, particularly once you've gone to, a, you know, the national government, once um, Labour have entered, the political party Labour have entered yeah. the cabinet, um, it's much easier to do this, to do this sort of deal. I mean, the, I mean, sort of the other aspect of that is, you know, British, uh, British policymakers are worried about what inflation might do in the... Um, in the war, yeah, and yeah. N- n- not because they don't just like inflation, because might, what it, what, the impact it will have on the war effort. So one of the reasons that um, taxes on incomes are put up quite sharply 
um, at the start of the war is not just to raise money. Because like in the end, you're putting up taxes by a bit, but you're still going to be borrowing an absolute shed load of money. It's not going, you know, you're not going to pay for this war free tax. The argument for putting up taxes really is to try and take a bit of the heat out of consumer spending. And it's when we see the the invention of something most of us are now familiar with. Um, pay-as-you-earn taxation is invented in the Second World War to um, and bring, in, bring in tax revenues quicker, um, take a bit of income out of households to slow down consumer spending yeah. faster. And, you know, the great advantage from the Treasury's point of view of pay-as-you-earn taxation is it allows you to level income tax on... Um, People with a, a lower income who aren't, you know, used to building, a, you know, um, building up a large pot of money to pay the following year. So that, so, th- and you get the money yeah. now as well. You're not getting it. You're not getting it the following yeah. year. So, so th- that helps your receipts, basically, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, uh, treasury. Whose innovation is that? Is that uh, uh, some one? Some one treasury. treasury. Yes, yeah, so, you know, we can thank we can thank the Napoleonic Wars for income tax and the Second World War for <laughs> pays you earn income taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's. Inter- I mean, it's interesting though because because it is a characteristic of wars, certainly in this in this country, that that, that they result in the extension of the state, don't yeah. they? That, that it, Inevitably, and and then I suppose the sort of the sort of um, a, you know the, the the absolute signature of this is the is the is the beverage report, which is where economics, social policy, and the war all, all sort of you know like like a magician's links suddenly a, suddenly a, a magician's rings you know suddenly connected. Um, what's beverage? Where's beverages thinking within this economic picture? Because after all. You, you, you say that the war's being much better managed economically to start with, and, and but there's got some point it's going to end. At some point you're going to have to pay. You're, you're going to have to find the money for all this stuff you're buying that you're going to solve the problem later. Does Beveridge fit into that picture, or or is 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 he purely concerned domestically economically with what's going to happen, or is he part? Is he also part of this kind of how you exit the war, how you? Regear your industry, how you deal with a load of men coming back into the workforce and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, again, you know, I think what's sort of sitting on everyone's shoulders here is the end of the First World War, when, you know, there was all of this talk of, you know, a land fit for yes. heroes and Hope. homes for heroes. And then it wasn't. And then it wasn't, no. Um, then you get this sort of, you know, Britain, you know, if anyone ever says roaring 1920s when they're talking about Britain's economy, just tell them they're wrong. You know, America had a roaring, a roaring 20s. Britain had an incredibly miserable 1920s of high unemployment, the general strike, uh, yes. really sluggish growth. This yep. was all sort of the impact of, of the war. You know, the war had left Britain with a load of debts for the first time. Britain transformed yep. from being this international creditor to this international debtor. Its industry was twisted out of shape. It had lost access to some important export markets, all of that, miserable 1920s. And I think beverage is... You know, part of a part of a push to make sure that doesn't happen again. That you know, um, Britain is fighting its second economic total war in thirty odd years, and this one, the aftermath, is going to be managed better. Um, and it's quite interesting when you look at beverage that um, it sort of assumes that we're now going to be in a world of um, full employment. That you know, that that that, that policymakers have learned um, how to manage the economy to, you know, keep demand high, to keep unemployment low, and that, you know, that the beverage report is about, you know, filling in the gaps around this um, this full employment um, society where support is needed, which doesn't, you know, comp- turn out to be the case in the long run. But it's, a, yeah, I think it's a very conscious 
learning the lessons of what happened last time and making sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, and what, and what is the state of, you know, you're saying how bad the, the state of the British economy is in the 1920s, but I mean, you know, that's before the Wall Street crash. Then you have the, the, the crash. Then you got the Depression. I mean, things, are, things aren't great in the 1930s either, are they? I mean, you know, there's loads of industries which are in, in a really bad way. I mean, agriculture's absolutely fallen through the floor. Um, all, all these all these structures and, and industries which are going to be so vital for the, the Second World War effort are, are, are in a really bad state. And yet you still have this enormous global reach, which is presumably it's kind of one of its saving factors. Yeah, so you get like, so the British economy starts to recover in the sort of mid-30s. You know, interest rates are cut mm. to like incredibly low levels. You get a, you get a house building boom, um, which puts more people into work. Um, and you get, you get the growth of sort of new, more modern light industries, particularly in the south of England. But it's this very different yep. um, regional picture um, in the 30s in Britain. So, you know, um, the northeast, bits of the northwest, central belt in Scotland, south Wales, um, bits of the Midlands even, um, you know, in a really dire state. Um, yeah. But then, you know, booming, booming new towns, um, not new, bo- booming sort of newer towns, not new towns, um, in the south. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. and, this, and, and there is a recovery in place, which is then helped towards the end of the 30s by the first steps towards you know, rearmament, uh, you know, sort of fighter production goes up as you see the shadow factories um, go into operation. Um, Yeah. We're going to take a very short break now. We'll be back in a second. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and we are talking to Duncan Weldon, who's expanding our minds with the world of economics. <laughs> um, at the start of the war, the, the pound's fixed the dollar, isn't it? That there's a there's a decision that the pound will be fixed. Um, that uh, Britain will carry on trading and will sort out where the money's going to come from in the end. Then halfway through the war, they're trying to create the land fit for heroes in the form of the beverage report. But then the the war ends. <laughs> what happens next to the British economy? Because after all, I mean, you know, you get a Labour government as well who are coming in to enact beverage. You're going to spend. You're going to have to spend some money nationalising stuff. They're going to have to. They're going to. They're going to um, withdraw from empire pretty quickly um it is pretty certain because certainly one of the things that's definitely happened over the course of the war is the british public are no longer no longer care for the british empire they're, they're, they're not interested in it anymore they don't they don't see the, the benefit of the thing so so what happens next you know may the 8th or uh, you know does, do, do things fall off a cliff or does that happen in august or or what happens so the what what, what takes the british government by surprise is how quickly the US ends Lend-Lease um, straight after yeah. the war. And there's been sort of this working assumption it would be gradually phased out and instead you get this sort of cliff edge. And Churchill, um, 
by then in opposition, um, is, you know, actively helpful to the government lobbying the Americans on this. He calls it a financial Dunkirk, what the Americans have done, you know, sort of the scale of, um, you know, ending, ending lending. So you get this very difficult, sort of immediately after the war, um, in Britain and across Europe, you've got a really difficult first um, two or three years, which, which is all really a question of, you know, the only industry up there able to, you know, satisfy consumer desires is across the Atlantic in North America. You know, much of industry on the continent has been devastated by the war. Britain's industry has sort of been twisted into a very, you know, war-facing direction. Um, and there's this huge shortage of dollars. You know, countries need to find a source of dollars so they can buy this stuff from the United States. And, you know, Britain is, yeah, Britain is, you know, embarking on the first stages of dismantling the empire of decolonization. We're heading towards Indian independence. But it is really interesting how, you know, the Attlee government, you know, obviously a um, left-wing Labour government, um, you know, is, is, is critically aware it needs these dollars. You know, if you look at how Britain goes about reimposing um, rule in areas that had been conquered by the Japanese, that's partially a dollar thing. So, you know, what you want is you want Malaysian rubber plantations up and running as quickly as you can because you earn dollars by selling rubber from Malaysia. So it's very much, you know... Um, you know, wow. The, okay. the aftermath of where can we get dollars do that? Um, what sort of, you know, changes the situation is when you get the Marshall Plan. Um, and, you know, a few, a few years after the war, when the United States basically steps up with this, you know, what's called the European Recovery Plan, named after George Marshall, um, former general, now um, Secretary of State, which is essentially going to provide an awful lot of dollars to European countries that will accept it. Um, to help them rebuild their economies and it's dollars that they need and that that really changes and the, why uh, and why is the us doing that because it thinks that a global market a, a global a globally flourishing western market is 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 helpful for for america yeah i think it's two things I think. it's so not it's pure a, altruism no is it's it? not that it's not that you've got the it's not pure altruism you know uh, 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 yeah i think you know, a flourishing western european economy is good for america and then of course you've got the um the onset of the cold war as well um, yeah. in that, you know, the countries which take the martial aid in the end turn out to be those in the, the Western sphere um, and the Soviet Union doesn't let the doesn't let Eastern Europe um, take the money, although it is initially offered to them as well. And, you know, but yeah, so it's partially it's partially it's good for America to have a strong um, booming Europe, a stronger European economy. And it's partially that, you know, America needs to make sure its allies are in a position to potentially fight another total war. Um, against the Soviet Union. And, and a lot of people always say, well, of course, you know, we only just finished playing Lend-Lease in, the, in, in, in 2008 or whatever, 2007 or when it was, when Gordon Brown was, was Prime Minister. And of course, that's absolutely nonsense. You know, we never paid for Lend-Lease at all. But, but there was, it was post-war loans, wasn't it? Yeah, post-war yeah, post loans. We, we have to get some, yeah, we negotiate some um, post-war loans. We send um, Keynes over to um, Washington, by now Lord Keynes, Treasury Minister again, yes. And, you know, he, he negotiates the, um, the post-war loan, which is paid back. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we, we tend to talk a lot about Lend-Lease and the post-war dollar loans. You know, another big source of financing for Britain's war effort came from, you know, countries called the Stirling area. So in the, yes. the 1930s, lots of, you know, dollar wasn't the dominant currency it is today. Lots of, current, lots of countries conducted their trade in Stirling. Mainly, you know, the components of the British Empire, except Canada, which worked in a dollar system but you know most of the empire was using sterling 
uh, pound. And yep. so were some other countries not in the empire. So Argentina was on the sterling standard because it did a lot of yes. trade with Britain that made sense. And what happened during the war was um, something rather techie. I will do my best to make uh, as less techie as we can. The sterling balances. And what the sterling balances were was um, countries agreed to continue selling Britain um, the stuff it usually imported, but they agreed to leave that money in London. So Britain right. continued to buy um, meat from Argentina, um, and it paid Argentina um, for that meat, but the money was left in London. So effectively, it was like a... Um, effectively, it was a long-term loan um, from these countries to Britain, which was, you know, as, as big a story as Lend-Lease was, you know, Indian, Egyptian, Argentinian, all of these other countries financing of Britain's war effort. Well, that's amazing because that, that's new to me. I don't mm. know about you, Al. I hadn't heard, heard, heard about that. And well, do you know? Do you know what? I didn't know about the Sterling area, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was the that was the way the Sterling area was being. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I meant. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I didn't realise about the Argentines. Yeah. And, uh, Argent- well, I knew Argentinians. about the Ar- Argentina. Uh, that I mean, did, I mean, part of what's also happening in the war is the Americans are seeking to break Sterling domina- dominance, aren't they? And they do, it's an opportunity for them to do exactly that, and that's exactly what they do, isn't it? I mean, it's it's you know. Uh, I think it's always interesting when people talk about the Marshall Plan in terms of altruism. Well, maybe. I mean, I always think it's. I always think that's kind of stretching it, really, because the the war is very much an opportunity for the Americans to to shatter this um, sterling dominance in world trade, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, and they, they insist. They grab it with both hands. Yeah, they insist when we get the post-war loans that we will make sterling convertible, um, not have like a fixed um, price. Um, which causes yeah. all sorts of problems. You know, we get, Britain gets this awful winter in sort of forty seven, forty eight, uh, when we're shortage of um, shortage of dollars, meaning we're struggling to import certain things. Um, you know, it's all very messy. I mean, you know, one one upside of all bad of it, winter as well. Yeah, bad winter. One 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 um, one good upside of sort of the dollar crunch is you know the birth of modern British cinema. In that, um, you know, we're trying to limit <laughs> imports of um, we're trying to yeah you know, we're trying to conserve our precious dollars. Um, so the right. government is very keen to import as few Hollywood films as possible. Uh, so you get all of your Ealing comedies and all of this because um, you can make those and pay for them in sterling. <laughs> right. Amazing. I had no I mean, the idea. Thing is, the thing is, is the Attlee government is, is uh, you know, is famous for, for the, the welfare state, but it's a, it is a warfare state still, isn't it, essentially? And uh, uh, it is still, is still skewed to war production because after we see the birth of the jet age during that time and yeah and, you know 250,000 people in, in Britain working in the aviation industry in 1946 wow that's incredible and and you know that and we because we've on this podcast we've talked about the development of the jet engine before and 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 you know it's a story that's painted of that is it's this great missed opportunity it was in fact the production of the piston engine is working perfectly well within the parameters you need for, for, for fighting the war and ending it by 1945 but the jet engine is what you need for 46 47 48 and that's that's the way it's geared, and and aviation is is geared for this this exit, which 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 relies on the continuation of a warfare state yeah. under the Attlee government. And you know you you and then of course the Attlee government gets involved in the Korean War, you know, because it's because it's a warfare state, yeah. arguably. Well, yes, and, and if you and, think about about the Rolls Royce Avon, for example, which yeah. is the first sort of turbojet engine, it's um. Uh, I think that's in, that's that's designed and, and first built in 1944, and it goes into production in 1946. Yeah, I mean, yeah, defence spending is much higher than health and education spending, you know, throughout the throughout the 1940s. You know, once the war is finished, you know, um, and obviously conscription doesn't end either; it transitions into 
national service. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, I think a warfare state as well as a as well as a welfare state is a, is a really fair description of what is you know Major Attlee's government after all, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and let's yeah. not forget it. It's not like there isn't any war. Exactly. I mean, you know, there's troubles. There's troubles in the Middle East. There's Malaya. There's there's Korea. Um, there's Suez. I mean, it doesn't stop. And there's the burgeoning question of deterrence around an atomic weapon, which of course of the British course. government needs to get its hands on. You know, and, uh, uh, I think, and, I think uh, we get atomic in 1948, don't we? Well, and there's the business of Attlee spending secretly spending a million pounds on it, and Churchill making a big fuss when he finds out, isn't there? That later on, how dare you spend this money without running it past Parliament? I mean, it's it it, it I mean the, the the sort of the thing is is if you view the 40s as a block rather than trying to sort of find the moment when the war ends in and you know what happens next? There is there's more of a continuum to the entire thing, isn't there? In, in fact, that's actually probably a more fruitful way of looking at what happens economically in, in the UK in, in the forties. Because 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 at the same time as as you know you've got the, the the economy obviously state the state in relation to GDP demands grow, um, uh, taxation goes up, debt goes up, but the British Empire contracts at the same time. The sterling area is broken on the on the wheel of the dollar. I mean, the, the, the sort of that Britain continues to try and spend money on a, as a global player by ni- in 1950. It's quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? It's not particularly realistic. Yeah, I think that's. I think you know, it takes it takes Britain, it takes Britain a long time to adjust to its sort of you know change standing in the global economy. You know, and the big the big change is the First World War. You know, going going into you know it, Britain in 1912, 1913, just before the First World War is this utterly extraordinary economy. You know, if you compare it to, if you compare it to now, Britain in sort of 1911, 19, Britain about 1910, before the, just before the First World War, is the single largest manufacturing power in the world. It's the largest exporter of energy in the world, and it's the centre of global finance. It's like, today, it's like combining the place of China, Saudi Arabia, and New York in one country. You know, Britain is just this extraordinarily successful, important economy in um, just for the First World War. And the First World War really changes changes that. You know, Britain becomes a debtor. It loses loads of export markets. It's suddenly got this very high um, uh, And that's just the cost of the First World yeah, War. Yeah, yeah. Just the First Incredible World War is just extraordinary, cost extraordinary cost. And, you know, and the world economy changes. You know, before the First World War, we're in sort of an age of... We're in, we're in effectively an age of globalization, of you know, um, rising international trade, of cross-border yep. lending, of you know, um, lots of um, mobility of people, of ideas, of goods, of capital, and then in the nineteen twenties and thirties, you're into this sort of more autarkic, protectionist world of trade barriers going up. There being less trade, there being less cross-border um, lending, etc. And Britain's econ- Britain's economic model struggles in that world. And I think after the Second World War, um, you know, the real blows come in the First World War, but the, the transition back to something approaching peacetime is managed much better. The debts have been managed much better during the war, so you don't have this crippling interest expense that you had in the 1920s. But it's still, despite all of that, it takes, you know, it takes, it takes sort of British policymakers a good... 20 years to, you know, but depending whether you market it Suez or whether you market it as, um, um, you know, the decision to pull out of east of Suez, um, military commitments in the late 60s, it takes Britain, you know, a good 10, 15 years to sort of, you know, 
Britain is still a very important economy at this point, but it is not the major world power it was at the start of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, the, Britain's position at the, as you say, before the First World War, was quite. It is amazing. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary, and uh, and but it's but it's also interesting. It's only four years to to shatter that completely, and and a lot of the uh, in between. Do you think that some of the sort of uh, um, protectionism and retrenchment um, in between the wars to do is is a sort of a reaction to the idea we had this global world and look where it got us, and so we we, we, we need to protect us because because it because it tends to be there tends to be a pendulum that swings doesn't it from globalization then back to back to um uh, uh protectionism and it and it the, the pendulum swings at its own kind of rate you know you could argue we're going through a protectionist phase now after a long period of globalization post cold war is 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 that what's happening in between the in the 20s or is it, it, it is it that when things go wrong you know you retrench. You 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 head towards autarky. Yeah. So Britain, just as James said at the start of this, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and is it a product of the idea of the failure of global global trade? Yeah. So sort of, there's definitely a push in the nineteen thirties in Britain to sort of turn more towards the empire and let and away from open global markets. You know, Britain's been this great free trading country since the eighteen forties, and then in the early nineteen thirties, Britain starts putting up. Um, tariffs, you know, imperial preference, it's called, you know, favouring trade yeah. of the empire. And you get, you know, the empire, the empire marketing board encouraging people to buy empire butter rather than, you know, um, Danish and Dutch um, butter, etc. <laughs> the English breakfast becomes a bit more imperial. You know, um, the bacon stops coming from um, stops coming from Denmark and the, um, the butter stops coming from the Netherlands. Um, so, yeah, you, you do get this more inward turn in the in the 30s, which, you know, you see again. After the Second World War, Britain is, you know, becomes a bit more reliant on trade with colonies and former colonies in the fifties. And, and Duncan, I mean, there was a there was a sort of new trend in the nineteen sixties to kind of sort of rubbish um, the British war effort in its entirety. Um, I'm thinking it's sort of AJB Taylor and, uh, and the likes, uh, and particularly damn the the war economy. I, I mean, I've got a book somewhere up in my shelf which sort of basically says says. You know the reason why Britain was so terrible in the Second World War was because its economy was appalling. Um, it was absolutely rubbish. You know, grounded ourselves into the dust, etc., etc., etc. But but it sounds to me like you you think you got it pretty pretty right. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you, you can judge this one by results, I think. And uh, Britain, Britain did win. <laughs> well, um, I would you know, agree. Um, well, you know what? But yeah, that's music to the music to yeah. our ears because because so, so much of the way the, the war's viewed. So so for instance, how the British fight. Yeah. Um, is very much seen as oh, you know, they're crap compared to the Germans. But um, there's a there's a result. Yeah. Maybe suggests something else. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I'm not used to saying the Treasury got something right, particularly in the 1930s. <laughs> but the Treasury seems to have managed that that balancing act of rearming enough that you're not going to lose a short war, but being in a position that you you are reasonably confident you can win a long war. And you know, and I think uh, uh, Duncan, we, we've got quite a lot. We've got Chamberlain to thank for that to a certain extent. Well, I was just going to say, surely the credit goes to, to Chamberlain. I, 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 to be fair, I think you know Chamberlain was a an appalling sort of political leader in some ways. He, he made many, many mistakes on many, many things. But you can't. I think it's really hard to fault his management of you know getting Britain to a place in 1939 where you know it could be confident enough to declare war on Germany. You know, I mean, there there is this this confidence in sort of the Anglo-French leadership. You know, they they think they can win. Yeah. All right then. It's a sort of all right then. We'll do this. Okay. Fine. If that's if that's how you insist on behaving, it's it's sort of got that element, hasn't it? Well, that is a relief to hear. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Duncan, thanks so much for this. And, and uh, you know, we didn't talk about balance of payments or, you know, interest rates or the things that start to make me my head hurt too much. I mean, it's, you've done that. No, I, I feel fairly in command of my brain still, which I'm quite pleased with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's absolutely Thank fascinating, so man. Really, Thank really you. was. Oh, no, no, absolutely fascinating. And um, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, we've been talking to Duncan Weldon, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye-bye.